Father, we do call upon your name today. Um, God, we do speak the name of Jesus knowing uh, we, there are, there's members, there's, there's dear friends in our congregation, Father, this morning that are uh, struggling with hurt and struggling with suffering, uh, with loss. Father, at the same time, we have members who are, <laughs> who are actually gathered in other churches today because they're getting to witness baptisms of family members, Lord. So we, we have seen the name of Jesus do great and mighty things. Um, Father, we call upon your great name to restore and to heal today, Father, in our lives. And we, we, we stand firm, Lord, knowing that when we do call upon your name, that we do see you at work, we do see healing. We do see life, Father, that we do not come to you weary as if this was uh, our last resort. We come to you saying, God, we know that this is the place. Uh, this, is, this is where you've called us to be. This is what you've called us to do, Father, to come to you, uh, to, to call upon your name uh, in, in any, any season, Father. Um, so we do that with complete confidence this morning. It's in your holy name we pray, God. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we do, we do church have, uh, I've asked if it would be okay to share. We do have um, some family members uh, of church members who are getting baptized today over in Lynchburg. So we are celebrating this morning uh, that, yeah, God does change hearts. God does change lives. Uh, and even if we're not physically gathered in this building, we can still celebrate that work being done. Uh, and the work that we get to do this morning, church, is uh, you have borne with me through two chapters of blueprints. And we're going to finish this section this morning. Uh, and I, I saved for some of you what you will find to be the best for last. If best in your minds is equal to shortest, uh, then the shortest section is the last one this morning. But we are concluding, uh, we've been talking about the tabernacle for the past two weeks. Uh, and if you guys can think back to two weeks ago in chapter 25, I don't know if you've seen this, but we've, we've kind of been moving from the inside out. So chapter 25 was, was the covenant that God makes with his people as the tabernacle. And he says, if you will sacrifice your life for me, then I will give you my life. I'll give you my presence. I'll give you my righteousness in return. So it kind of starts with this. Okay, this is between me and God, this covenant that we make. Then last week in chapter 26, we started to see God says, okay, because I've made you this way, let me show you a little bit more about how that means you will relate with me and you will relate with the rest of the world. And so chapter 26, guys, we, we talked about the tabernacle being a physical place, a spiritual place, a place where God's presence was going to dwell among us so that the world would know his righteousness. And we said, what else in scripture sounds like something God made physically, but it also has a spiritual purpose that it's for God to make his name and his image known to the rest of the world. We said that sounds a little bit like you and me. And we saw indeed from Hebrews, Paul saying, uh, yeah, it is. That we as Christ's followers are the tabernacle today. And as we've been kind of moving from the inside out, guys, as you can imagine, if I said we're on the last section, now we're kind of at this external piece this morning in chapter 27. So if you look at it from the tabernacle side, Chapter 25 was everything inside the tent, right? What the altar, the, or not the altar, the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstand, the table, all the stuff that went inside. Okay, then the next chapter was like the tent 
itself. Now, this chapter is everything on the outside of the tent. So this, this is the external piece. And guys, because of this, we're going to get to wrestle with this question that, um, again, I feel like I, I say this fairly often. I can't give you the full answer today. And that's just because there's just so much to the answer of the question that we're going to look at. We, we can't cover it in a 40-minute sermon, uh, I mean, let alone an hour and 40 minutes. I mean, it, we could be here for days and we still wouldn't get to touch this. But because Moses is now receiving the directions for the outside of the tabernacle, what God is trying to show in his people in this is, is getting him to think about what does it look like for you and me to be in God's presence when we're in a world that doesn't know God? Why did God give Israel this tabernacle, this place uh, where they would be made right with him, where they would be set apart from the rest of the world? Why, why did God call his people to be in his presence in the midst of a world that just fundamentally did not know who he was? Okay, That's the question we're going to wrestle with this morning. How, how does this calling for you and I to be with God relate to the way we relate with our world. So chapter 27, guys, it's really going to boil down to two things, okay? He designed his tabernacle as his place of reconciliation and his place of gathering. Those are the kind of the two big things that God has called his tabernacle to be in the midst of a world that doesn't know him. He's called his tabernacle to be his place of reconciliation and gathering for his creation. So this is where we're going in chapter 27. Um, We're actually going to leave the last two verses for next week when we get into the priests. Uh, But beginning in chapter 27, verse 1, God tells Moses, You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar." And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on the two sides of the ark uh, when it's carried. Uh, you shall make it hollow with boards, and has it been, as it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Now you shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long, its pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court from the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with the three pillars and three bases. Then on the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of purple and blue and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars with them, four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. 
The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50, and the height 5 cubits, with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Father, just as we have come to you each week, uh, the past couple of weeks, and we've been reading your blueprints for the tabernacle, Lord, let us see what you're really after here. Father, may we, again, just be able to hear from your Holy Spirit. Lord, may you open uh, our ears to hear and our heart to understand, because this is, this is tough, Lord. It's, it's tough wading through and seeing, okay, okay, God, what were you after in all of this? Um, so, Father, open, open our ears, open our eyes, just to receive you and your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So like we said, we are on the outside of the tabernacle. And each week, I don't know, sometimes, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but when I, when I find after I've wrestled through the text and I get to the main point and then I share that up front with you guys, I always have a momentary reaction of we're not going to know how in the world we got from point A to point B. That, that's, where, that's where I feel like we start from. And it's, it's beautiful to get to see how God is being very intentional, as we've been seeing, in, in the directions just of what he's building, why he's building it. So the first piece of our main point this morning, church, in these directions for the altar, for the courtyard, what, what is God after in his tabernacle? How does the tabernacle relate to a world that doesn't know him? It says, first off, God makes his tabernacle as his place of reconciliation between himself and his creation. And we see this in, in the altar, primarily. The first eight verses are all about the altar where God gives Moses directions to build this place where all these sacrifices were going to be made. Uh, now, some of you may be thinking, oh, man, are we going to go through all the sacrifices next? Thankfully, most of those are in Leviticus. So the short answer there would be no. Uh, but maybe we'll do Leviticus at another time. Uh, but most of the sacrifices that God was going to ask his people to offer so that they could be made right with him, they were going to go on top of this, this bronze altar. And the altar was very, very substantial in size. I realized this week, and I'm, I apologize for this, that most of the dimensions are all given in cubits. I don't know if any of you have any measuring devices at home that measure things in cubits, but there's... We have no clue. I, I had not explained to you guys what a cubit is. A cubit is roughly a foot and a half. So when, when Moses is to build this altar, five cubits by five cubits by three cubits, this massive uh, square, it's, it's basically seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet by four and a half feet. That's pretty big. Okay, that's, that's almost like a big brick of a truck that's sitting out in the middle of the parking lot that you, you would not be able to miss this altar, if this altar was in our parking lot or inside this, this courtyard, very substantial. And we see the phrase again in verse 8, where Moses, or God tells Moses, you shall make it hollow with boards. Uh, as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. If you guys remember last week, we talked about why did God specifically say make things after the design on the mountain. We said, that's God's way of saying, make it in my image. Remember, Moses is on the mountain. All he sees is the presence of God. So God's saying, again, just like the tabernacle, it's a physical place, it has a spiritual purpose, it's made after my image, and I'd, I've done this so that the world will come to know me through it. He says the altar is the same thing. And the last thing I'll point out with the altar too, um, and again, this is something that has come up in the previous 
chapters we haven't really talked about. But if you guys heard, pretty much everything in the tabernacle was meant to be mobile. That all of these, all these things, the, the table, the Ark of the Covenant, here again with the altar, they all have these hooks on the edge that they could slide these wooden poles through so they could carry them. So God specifically says with this altar, it's going to be big, it's going to be prominent, it's going to be a place where all the sacrifices are going to go, and it's going to be mobile. Then, then the engineer in me appreciates in verse 7 when he says, make it hollow with boards. But God's people are going, you want us to move a seven and a half foot by seven and a half foot by four and a half foot square? That thing's going to be heavy. God says, we'll just make it hollow. He's, he's working with his people. But he, he's teaching them these things are going to be prominent in your life, but they're also going to be mobile. Guys, what God is doing in giving this to Israel is he's saying, I am going to be with you wherever you are. He's saying you, you don't need to build a, a permanent location. Like there's going to be a physical place on earth where when you're there, you're with me. And then if you ever got moved or displaced from that location, suddenly I'm, I'm no longer with you anymore. God, God says wherever you go, I will be there with you. So make this thing mobile so that it can go with you and make it big so that everybody can see, including the rest of the world, wherever I put you, May it be that everyone will know who I am and that I am with you. And guys, this is, this is especially powerful because if you remember, we left off at the end of chapter 26 talking about the veil, right? We said the veil was this, this massive curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place. So chapter 26 ends with God giving Israel this reminder of this, what we said, what Paul calls it, the dividing wall of hostility, right? That we've been broken apart from God in our sin. And he leaves that image with them at the end of 26. And the very next thing he tells them is, but I'm going to go with you wherever you go. I'm going to bring with you wherever you go the ability to be made right with me. Right after God says, yes, there is, there is a divide between you and me, the very next thing, a mobile altar where you will always be able to know who I am. You will always be able to be made right with me. The world will get to see this because it's, it's going to get even more fleshed out in the coming weeks when we get into the priesthood. You, you talk about a mobile altar God says, now I'm going to make people that are going to become mobile altars. Okay, so it's, it's fascinating where we're going. But what we are seeing here is just how badly God wants his creation to be made right with him. He says, Israel, I'm, I'm not going to keep you in the same place. And in fact, Israel, I'm probably going to let you move around a little bit so that the rest of the world will start to get to know you. Right? If, if you stay in one place... You're depending upon the rest of the world coming to you if they have the means to be able to travel to get to know God. God says, Israel, I'm going to teach you to make everything mobile so we can take this show on the road, right? So that you're going to be able to go and wherever you go, Israel, the world is going to see me in you. And you're going to travel with this altar. So Israel, wherever you go, you are going to be in a place where you are going to be made right with me. And you're going to be reminded to teach the world then what does it look like to be made right with me. Church, if we place this in context of last week where we said that you and I are the tabernacle, then this kind of becomes our calling as well. Where God is, as he's working, 
in our lives, what he's after is, is this reconciliation that, guys, you and I are called to be reconciled to God. Okay, we are not going to lead anybody to come to know the Lord if we aren't striving to know him, if we aren't right with him to begin with. So God says, look, in the tabernacle, I'm placing an altar because what you do at this tabernacle, because you are the tabernacle, you're going to be getting made right with me. So God says, look, if, if you and I are the tabernacle today, church, we are called to be made right with God. If you've been in church uh, for any stretch of your life, you have probably heard somebody at some point talking about the phrase, uh, putting your faith in Jesus, right, or, or coming to faith in Jesus. I mean, this, this is the language of the tabernacle, church, where we're saying, okay, if if God set up all these sacrifices to go on the altar, Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection, that's, that is our sacrifice, right? That is the sacrifice that allows us to be right with God. So God says, you, again, you take up the life of Christ as your own because you need to be reconciled to me. He says, but, but I'm going to make you mobile. And I'm going to move you around. I'm going to be able to send you out. So not just you are right with me, but my world will start to know who I am. My world, when they look at you, Israel, they're going to see what does it take to be made right with God. It, it's an internal calling. It is an external calling. You and I, church, we are to be the place where the world is going to come to know what does it look like to be made right with God. That, that, that is a fundamental part of our identity. And the second piece that goes with it, that God designed the tabernacle as a place of reconciliation. He also designed it to be a place of gathering. So that is God is working to reintroduce himself to his world that has left him behind. Not only is God going to use the tabernacle to make himself known and to make himself right with his creation, he's actually going to come and gather his creation to himself in this tabernacle. And guys, this, this is where the courtyard comes into play. And I don't know, I mean, maybe you guys have heard more about the altars because it's, it's a little bit easier for me, us to make a connection between altars and sacrifice. Uh, for me, I, I, I really had to read through this this week to see, okay, but God, why, why a courtyard of all things with your altar? And I realized, church, that if all God was after was just our salvation. If all God wanted was just like me to be right with him and Abigail to be right with him and you as an individual be right with him and that was it, there would have been no need for the courtyard. Okay, because we have the altar, we have the sacrifices, we have the Ark of the Covenant, that we're good. But God does something very intentional when he puts in the courtyard. So what do we see about this courtyard that would tell us why a courtyard? First off, I'll, now that we kind of know what a cubit is, we see the, the courtyard's big. The courtyard was massive. The, the courtyard was over 11,000 square feet. Okay? This place was huge. Now, the whole nation of Israel would not have fit inside of it. Because it's not, and we're not talking about a Nationals Park up in D.C. kind of big. But, but we're talking about something that was huge. It was you know, earlier when God told Moses and Israel... Only the priests can go into the holy place, and only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and that just but once a year. God's basically said it, so I'm going to be with you 
But it, as far as just my tent, the tent inside the tabernacle is concerned, there's not really a place for you guys to be with me. God says, I'm going to make this courtyard a place where anybody that's within the camp can come into my presence and be made right with me. Because we see not only was it big, the altar was smack in the middle of this courtyard. Right? So not only is God just wanting to be near his creation, but God's saying, I'm going to build a special place where as people come into this place, they're going to learn and more importantly, they're going to physically see what does it look like to be made right with God. What does it look like for a life to be saved, for a life to be transformed? God says this is going to take place in the courtyard. There's, there's some strains of, of Christianity that will, you know, that you just, do, you miss the courtyard function, right? And sometimes we get into this as well, that we make our faith a very private practice. If you were to put it in the tabernacle language, it'd be kind of like we, we approach the priest and we say, can you just kind of discreetly take care of this? And then the priest would go into the, the tent, just do his thing and come back out and say, okay, you're, you're good. God, that's not the design that God has. I mean, in, in addition to the fact that, yes, it would probably break several fire code violations to have an altar where you're burning sacrifices inside a very flammable tent, God really wanted his atonement to be a public thing, something where God's people would always have before them a picture of what it was like. And, and even the, the best part of this church, and, and you might... You might not think it's the best part, but the four-year-old Jordan within me loves the gate. When I was a young kid going out for Halloween, three years in a row, I was a door. Okay, I, I, you guys are going to learn. I've had some random obsessions in my life. A bus was one of them. That's why I still work at Blacksburg Transit. Uh, but one of the early obsessions I had was doors. Uh, for three years, I was, I was, two of those years, I was actually a garage door. So mom had built this box that I would strap to my chest that had a door that would raise and lower. And then after Halloween, I would, you know, play with it with the cars. I, I have always just had a deep, deep affection for doors because why not? But I, I love that God gets super detailed with even the door of the courtyard. You know, it's almost like if, if the courtyard was just walls, you'd wonder, well, how do we even get in there? Like, God, if you're just going to put up walls, how do we even come into this place of reconciliation? And God says, no, look, there's going to be a door. First off, this is a massive door. Like, this door is the width of our whole back wall there, okay? Big door. Secondly, it's a beautiful door. Like, God's telling his people, you're not going to you're not going to have to worry about, man, do I, do I really know how to be made right with you, God? Do I really know what reconciliation looks like? God says, no, this is a massive door. It's a beautiful door. In fact, it's the same color as the tent behind it. So if there's any question as to if this is the right door or not, you know. You know. God is making sure his atonement and his reconciliation is very much on display. Right? He, he sets the walls up so he's saying, it, there is an intentional way that I desire you to come and be made right with me. You can't just accidentally back into the tabernacle. But God does say, we're putting a big door. We're putting a wide door. We're putting a beautiful door. You will know what it is to come know me. And guys, as I, as I was thinking about that this week, that what God is after is, yes, he, he's, it's an intentional design. 
but what he's working towards is, is drawing people to be right with him, reconciliation, but really working to bring people into life with him, this gathering piece. That's not just unique to the tabernacle. That what Israel is seeing in the tabernacle, they would say, oh, this has been God's story all along. That even, I mean, we're only into the second book of the Bible, and they were already looking at examples of saying, okay, God, I see the same work that you've been after. Because you think about when Adam and Eve sinned before God and they're sent out of the garden, God, it, the language is very clear. God sent them out. But then in the very next chapter where you see the story of Cain and Abel that you may be familiar with, you see God show up and issue a warning to Cain. He says, Cain, I know, I know kind of the direction you're headed. Guys, what that should tell us is that as God sent them out of the garden, he did not kick them out and then throw them away. He sent them out and then he went after them. To before Cain even did something, God shows up and says, I don't know if you, I would do that, Cain. That's not who I am. That's not what I've led you to do. God is still with his people. Right? Then when God shows up and he sees that all of humanity has totally left him with the exception of one man, Noah, and God sends the flood and he wipes out everything and he restarts creation again in Noah, he promises at the end of that story to Noah, he says, I will never wipe out mankind again. Because God says, don't get it wrong. I'm not after just punishing people for their sin. What I'm after is reconciliation and gathering. And as if to prove a point, he puts the rainbow in the sky as a promise that I'm not going to wipe you out again because I'm not a God demanding perfection. I am a God of reconciliation and gathering to my image. And then the next time humanity leaves God, you see God does indeed. He does not wipe out creation. What he does is he, he picks a family that already has some of the characteristics of God in them, and he sets them aside and says, I'm going to work with you to make my name known to everybody. And of course, church, we know that family is the family of Abraham, which then the next generation become the family of Isaac. Next generation becomes the family of Jacob, which further out becomes the nation of Israel. And at this point in Exodus, even though Israel had wandered so far away from God that they had become enslaved to Egypt, God again doesn't wipe them out. He also doesn't wipe Egypt out initially. What he does is he calls another, another person to bear his image before his people to get his people out. Moses. It's the same story, guys. That what God is after in the tabernacle, what he's after for his world, his creation that does not know him. He says, I'm going to always have representatives of myself in my world so that they would know how much I want them to be right with me, reconciliation, and how much I don't just want them to be right with me, I want them to be with me, this gathering piece. It's the same story we hear in the priests and then into the judges and then into the kings. It's the same thing we see in Christ. It's the same command that he left the disciples' church. It, it's the same story. And it, it, is, it is amazing to me to see, wow, even in the blueprints for this tabernacle, I mean, God is inviting his people to the same thing. So you and I today, when we talk about, oh yeah, from last week, we are the tabernacle. We we are called to do the same thing today. We are to be, as a church and as individuals, the place where God would make his reconciliation and his gathering known to his creation. 
So as we talk about specific application, what do we do with this church? You've heard me reference Hebrews the last two weeks. And that's because I love whenever you get to the point of sermon writing where you're going, okay, what, what application do we make with this? First and best is see if there's anywhere else in Scripture that references what you're talking on to see. Because a lot of times, Scripture builds on itself. And it's going to go back and it's going to say, hey, remember this thing you saw in the Old Testament? Here's what we do with this. And thankfully, the Apostle Paul uh, has done this. So if you flipped over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I believe we'll have the verses on the screen, Paul goes back. And he points to this moment with the tabernacle. And he says, so here's what we do with this now. Okay, here's what it looks like for you and for me to live as the tabernacle of God in a world that doesn't know him. Now, it it really spans like half of chapter 6 and the entirety of chapter 5. We're not going to read the entire thing this morning, church. Uh, But I'm going to just kind of briefly recap and we'll read a section. Paul starts in the first 10 verses of chapter 5 and he just talks about the earthly tent and the heavenly tent. And if you've ever read 2 Corinthians without knowing Exodus, you're going, earthly tent, heavenly tent, what is Paul talking about? The earthly tent is the tabernacle. Paul is referencing right back here to Exodus 27. Paul says, basically, you are used to this earthly tent. This earthly tent was going to teach you something. Now that you have Jesus, here's what we do. And I'm going to read the here's what we do. Uh, This is chapter 5, verse 11, and we'll we'll stop around verse 3 in chapter 6. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. I love some of you guys, your translation may have the word compels. Just like, I I can't do anything but this because the love of Christ is within me. The love of Christ controls us, compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now, now is the favorable time. Behold, now, now is the day of salvation. 
We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And he goes on to list a, a long line of things that we would commend ourselves in. Paul is making application to Exodus 27. So as we wrap up today, church, I'm just going to really quickly point out what is Paul saying in relation to this. Really, guys, it boils down to one thing. Paul's drive is that we would persuade others as ambassadors for Christ. That what God has desired, what he was trying to teach Israel in the tabernacle, what he's desiring his people to do as they're going to live in his presence in the midst of a world that doesn't know him, is that they would persuade others as ambassadors for Christ. He says, persuade one another because you know the fear of the Lord in chapter 5, verse 11 of 2 Corinthians. And he builds on this and he gets to the point where he says, basically, that means you're living as an ambassador for Christ in chapter 5, verse 20. And guys, the, the verb for appeal, when it says we persuade others, God making his appeal to us, the same word, it's parakaleo, it gives us the idea of someone calling someone to join them. And I think that fundamentally has to shape the way that we think about what we do as a church trying to dwell in God's presence in the midst of a world that doesn't know God. Because let me tell you, this, my initial reading, and just from my experience growing up in the church, serving in the church, watching, just I, I do a lot of people watching, which is creepy under some circumstances, but I, I enjoy when people are professing the name of Christ, listen to what language comes out of their mouths, listen to what, what is the testimony of their character. Okay? And, and just, this is just Jordan's observation, but I feel like we misunderstand when Paul says we persuade one another as God's making his appeal to us. From my observation, I'd say we, we tend to think about persuasion as a, more of like a, a logical, a purely logical viewpoint, right? That, that what we are after is I either need to prove how God is at work here or prove God's existence in this or prove how this thing is sin so that if we get rid of it, we would we get God's blessing. We, we think of persuasion more along the lines of a, a logical argument, if you will. And then that kind of affects the way we look at being an ambassador, right? An ambassador, therefore, is somebody who would then show up and say, well, then my, my, my background, my, my logical argument, what I'm standing for, let me show you why this is better than everything else, Okay. And that then plays over in the way that we live as Christians. It affects the way that we serve and that we minister as churches. Because then we just kind of get in this mentality of we have to make things that will be able to prove to others why what we have is better. And so that shapes the way that we minister to one another. It shapes the types of programs that we pursue in churches. It shapes the characteristics of leaders that we want to follow, that we're drawn to. I think it, it even shapes the way that we just interact with our culture, right? We, it is very natural for us as humans 
to group ourselves into this fight mentality. And we should know that better than anything being a college town, right? That, that every seven Saturdays in the fall, we, we squeeze like 70,000 people into Lane Stadium. Very few of us know anything about football, let alone can actually play football. But we all show up as our way of proving to the rest of the world that our, our group is better. And, and we're also kind of fortunate that, yeah, the, the world, it, it's, it's synonymous in America, Metallica Lane Stadium. Like, they know how we jump to enter Sandman. We, it, we're consistently one of the best entrances in college football. People know about how good our group is, right? Sometimes the product on the field does not match, and we can get into all of that. But, but that's, that is our tendency, church, that we want to show up because we want to prove that we are better. And, and I, I, do, I do want to be very careful because sometimes it sounds like I get really picky on uh, you know, certain types of ministries or certain types of civic engagements or on particular leaders. Please hear me on this, okay? I, I am not trying to make any sort of statement that the vessels are particularly bad, okay? That... You know, churches pursue ministries, churches pursue civic engagements. I'm not going to stand up here and, and say these things are bad, we shouldn't do them. We see examples in the New Testament of, of Paul going before government leaders and sharing the gospel with them, of Peter standing before thousands of Jews making logical appeals to the Old Testament. This is like the first three chapters of the book of Acts, right? Paul, Peter teaching very logically going through the Old Testament. The vessel is not the problem, okay? That, it just doesn't, the vessel is not what God promises does the work. God does not say that he was making his appeal through the program, through the policy, through the ministry, through the argument. Verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through Diane, through Lori, through Daryl, through Dwayne. That the most persuasive thing that what God was really after in the tabernacle as this place of reconciliation and gathering is that today, how is the world going to know who God is, it's because they will see it in us. And, I, and I, I realize, church, on another level, how profound that comes from the Apostle Paul. I feel like the Apostle Paul would fit in very well with some of our churches today because Paul, Paul was Mr. Policy. Paul was Mr. Rule Follower. Paul was a chief among the Pharisees, Paul knew better than anybody else how to, how to make a good bylaw, how to, how to make sure people had the letter to follow in order to be right with God. Paul knew this better than anyone, church. And here is Paul saying, I think God was after something different. Here is Paul saying, I understand now that God has been trying to reconcile the world to himself through Christ. And so to be an ambassador of Christ means God is making his appeal for his world to come to join him through 
the followers of Christ. So again, the vessels are not the issue, okay? Because God has placed each of you in different jobs, in different families, in different situations in life, all of them very unique so that God says, use what God has given you. Use what, what God has put forward you to do. Use that to show the world who I am. He says, but don't chase after the vessel thinking that's what makes the appeal. Paul says, that's not what makes the appeal. It is through you and me, church. So as we close, what does it look like for us to persuade others as Christ's ambassador? Paul spells this out. Four quick things. Paul says in verses 16 through 19, he says, because of this, we regard no one according to the flesh. Church, last week we spelled it out. We said how what God has created you and I to be, we're physical, we're spiritual, we're God's image bearers on the earth. Okay, that, that is who God has made us. When we... When we group ourselves in other things, we, we kind of lose sight of that, right? We, we start to have our, our, our us versus them mentality kick in. And Paul says, don't regard yourself this way. Say, so we even used to look at Christ that way. We, we thought, man, who's this Christ guy? He's teaching something different than Jewish. Is Christ teachings better than the Jews? He says, actually, I learned not to look at Christ that way because that's not how Christ presented himself. So one way we do that, we do not see ourselves or one another by the group. We do not regard anyone according to the flesh. Secondly, in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2, Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He's basically calling Christians to say, <laughs> grow. He says, again, just like the tabernacle, the point wasn't just reconciliation. We also have this courtyard because you are to be out doing the work of drawing one another in. Paul says here, same thing. Do not receive the grace of God. Do not take it just for yourself and let it die or stay there. And then he says, behold, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. God is calling us to bear this image to the world. Paul says, don't just let it stay with you. Verse 3 of chapter 6, Paul tells us another piece. What does it look like for us to persuade one another as ambassadors for Christ? Put no obstacle in anyone's way. Again, Paul knows how to put a good obstacle in front of somebody better than anybody else from his time being a Pharisee. Okay, the Pharisees followed, in theory, all the... 612 odd some odd laws of the Old Testament in addition to their own codes that they developed on top of that. Paul knew how to set a rule and how to follow it. Paul says do not set obstacles in front of people that would keep them from coming to know God. Do not add things to the gospel message that say you must think this way, you must look this way in order to come. Paul says do not put any obstacle between yourself and somebody coming to know God. Church, you were made to be the place of reconciliation and gathering. That big, beautiful, wide gate. Paul says do not shrink it, do not tear from it, do not put in little steps in front of it. Paul, Paul says do not put any obstacle in front of someone. 
And the last thing, verses 3 through 10, that long list, Paul is, is, he says, we commend ourselves in every way. Commend here means to set with another. It's, it's the language of gathering, church of, of drawing people into God. Now, I want to encourage you because one of the things Abigail and I felt at the very beginning when we were getting to know you guys was we felt this, that the reason you all have survived as a church, and the reason that God has this new season for us together is because we, we see this in you, that, that you guys understand, I want to be right with God. I don't always know what that looks like, but I, I want to be right with Him. And I'll tell you, we have had, whatever growth we have seen in the past year has purely been by you guys inviting people to come with you. Like, like people who understand what God is after is is gathering, is drawing others in, okay? We saw this from you. This time last year, Abigail and I were getting to know your search committee and your leadership team. It's crazy to think about next Sunday will have been one year since you guys voted and said, okay, yes, we would like to, to bring them here, okay? So we saw this from you guys, and we have only continued to see this, this grow. Please let this, let this be an encouragement. Because Paul is picking up on what God was trying to show Israel in the tabernacle. That the strongest testimony of God's reconciliation and gathering isn't in the ministry or the program or the logical argument or the policy. Paul says, I know this too well. That's how I used to live as a Pharisee. Paul says, no. What God was after in the tabernacle is the same thing that God was after in Christ. Is the same thing he's left the church to do today. The strongest testimony of God's reconciliation and gathering is in the daily lives of those who follow him. It's why God takes his image so seriously. Church, it's, that is what we are working forward to cultivate here. So I invite you to join us as a church in this work, just in continuing to grow in this work. And as I invite you to join us, let's, let's pray together, church. Sovereign God, Thy cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to thee with greatest freedom to set up thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself and I shall rejoice, for to bring honor to thy name is my sole desire. I adore thee that thou art God, and I long that others should know it, should feel it, should rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise thee, that thou might have all glory from the intelligent world. Let, let sinners be brought to thee for thy dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight. But thou can accomplish great things, Father. Thy cause is, is mine, and it is to thy glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as thou wilt. Do with me that thou wilt. But, oh, promote thy cause. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy blessed interest be advanced in this world. God, uh, we do ask that thou bring great numbers to Jesus. Yes. Father, let us see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for thee to the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is thy cause and thy kingdom that I long for, not my own. O oh Lord, 
answer my request. Father, we, we lay this at your feet this morning in humility. And God, we're ready to see where you lead. In your name we pray.